Welcome to the Feminine Truth Podcast with Mary Miranda, a place where you can reconnect with your wild, cyclical, and fierce truth. I am Mary Miranda, a mentor, coach, healer, and intuitive. I guide women on a journey of remembrance, reconnection, and embodiment of who they are, their essence, power, and truth by reawakening the power of their feminine energy, womb, and menstrual cycles. Join me each week to indulge in raw, unedited, and unfiltered topics to help women own and step into their divine feminine truth and become unshakable, unapologetic, and bold in who they truly are. Let's jump into today's conversation. Welcome to another episode of the Feminine Truth Podcast. Today, I have such a wonderful person that I have been dying to interview, and I'm so happy that she's here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. (laughs) Yeah. So why don't you introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, and kind of how you got started? Um, Yes. Uh, I'm all, it's always fun to like think about like what part of the my story that I want to share. Um, I guess you know I've been on the healing journey since I was 18 uh, and developed an eating disorder in college and was trying to find ways to heal. And I didn't grow up in a home that discussed mental health, um, where the idea of psychotherapy was kind of normalized so the the route that I knew to take was a route that was more normalized and was talked about a lot in my home was which was spirituality um and so I I found my way through my own spiritual understanding of self I found Buddhism Hinduism I started doing yoga I started finding tools that were helping me and finding um healing in my eating disorder and And that kind of took me on a path of wanting to become a coach, wanting to support other women, find tools in their own healing. And then that's taken me to grad school. And um, I'm I'm soon going to be a licensed psychotherapist. So it's just been a really wonderful journey. And at the core of my work has always been a a huge fascination with something that I call the worthiness wound, which is, you know, what is that innate sense of brokenness that so many of us experience? Um, And it, it doesn't seem like mindset hacks. It doesn't seem like just being told that you are enough really changes this really substantial, painful part of our our psyche that really likes to make us feel that we are inadequate, that we are too much and not enough, that we are um, um, uh, deeply fundamentally broken, that we didn't get the playbook for the world. So because of my own experience with the worthiness and, and my own healing journey, I started to really be focused on that specific particular facet of the human experience and trying to understand it, trying to um, figure out how to tend to it and, and how to kind of get out of our own way, so to speak, so that we can take up greater space in the world. Mm, that's amazing. And where do you think the worthiness wound comes from? Well, there's, you know, I, I think about it in layers. There's multiple influences and um, I call them risk factors and then there's protective factors. So for example, uh, c- cultural paradigms about what is acceptable and not acceptable is a risk factor. If you have 
um, more marginalized identities. Um, that's going to be against the lens of culture is going to be a risk factor. It's not that the identity itself is a problem. It's that our culture views it as a problem, right? As the, the further you are from what's considered the norm, the more there is a risk that you're going to internalize the shame and this narrative that there's something wrong with that identity. So that's just like one example. Um, familial influence is another example. In many ways, this can be a protective factor. If all of the members of your family carry the same identity, it can protect you from the cultural narrative. However, if you are your, the unique one of that identity, um, let's say your sexuality, you're, you're growing up in a heteronormative home and you identify as queer, then you're going to really struggle with, particularly if your caregivers aren't understanding of um, your sexuality, then it, it's going to contribute to the worthiness. So familial um, narratives and expectations, cultural narrative and expectations are kind of some of the more high level, more obvious ways, I think that we can really see how like, duh, right? Like if our culture says that um, our identity is bad, then of course we're gonna kind of in some ways internalize that. But then there's developmental um, influences and how we were raised and how um, our caregivers, despite maybe doing the best that they knew how, could have wounded or traumatized us to believing that we are too much or we are not enough. And that's what I, that's what I tend to focus on the most. Um, not that I don't speak to the other pieces, um, but that tends to be in one-on-one -on -one work where people want to go with in the most, is trying to make sense of that developmental piece and find a, a corrective way that they can tend to it so that they no longer feel debilitated um, and overwhelmed by the worthiness wound. Mm -hmm. And how come it's called a worthiness wound and not, the un and not unworthiness wound? Like for you, mm -hmm. what, is, like, what is like the difference? Because for me, it's like, oh, I feel so unworthy. And for me, it's a wound that is deep, ancestral. Yeah, like, sure. Past lives. I don't know. But it's like, I mean, that's a good point, Mary, that, mm -hmm, that the ancestral mm -hmm, mm -hmm, intergenerational trauma and ancestral um, epigenetics, all of that can 100% also impact our sense of um, worth and significance. It's a good question. I don't know. I, I think I just started calling it a, well, first I started calling it a wound because I really resonated with the idea of like naming it the way in which we tend to see as a physical wound, right? I liked the idea of equating it like a wound because I think it makes sense for people. And, you know, w with wounds, you don't just ignore it in hopes that it goes away. Like that would be silly, right? If you have a huge gash on your leg and I'm like, eh, it'll stop bleeding at some point. Like you go and get support and you clean it up and you stitch it up and there's plenty of aftercare that's associated. You know, it's, it's long-term support to take care of this um, gash in your leg. And it's, I want us to um, evoke the same feelings when it's about an emotional wound, which is the word in this wound is an emotional wound. We may not be able to see it, but it requires the same type of tender love and care and long-term commitment to it. So I, I knew that I wanted to call it a wound. Why I called it worthiness rather than unworthiness wound, I don't know. <laughs> Very interchangeable. Just, I feel like a lot of times they're interchangeable, but there is a an, a charge, a difference in energetic charge with the word for some reason. Like yeah. unworthiness, unworthiness for me when I was like 
trying to figure out what to ask you. And then I listened to this on a podcast with you. I was stalking you actually. <laughs> and then I listened to that. I was like, oh, I'm like, that is actually pretty good. And for me, it's like, oh, unworthiness feels more painful to me than worthiness. Like to me, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. my body, how it felt. And I was like, I think I align more with worthiness because it makes me feel like hope. There's hope. Yeah. Yeah. Again. I think for me, but obvio, uh, obviously, oh my God, I just spoke Spanish to you. <laughs> obviously, it's going to di- land differently in everybody else's body. Sure. And it's it's really about where the concept lands for you, right? Like, that's the most important thing. We want to move away from the intellectual intellectualization of it and really get into the energetics of it. So whatever um, changes and and uh uh, shifts that one needs to make in order to make this this land in, in a cellular level is really all that's important. Yes, yes. It's like a for me, it's like a whole body trauma. Yes, feeling. Yes, I tried to ent- intellectualize it for so many years, journaling about it, trying to understand the root cause, where it come from. Very, yes. very intellectual, doing like excel spreadsheets of my wounds yeah. and my work mm-hmm. and then one day I'm like okay we need to go somatic we need to go to the body because this is just like too much for me so yeah um, and I feel like the worthiness is just a tip of the iceberg there's so much stuff underneath that mm-hmm. this wound so it's a it's a like what came first you feeling unworthy or there's all these things underneath, like the undeservingness and not enough and not belonging that cause the mm-hmm. word. So it's like what came first. Or- yeah, sure. The way, you know, I like to think of the worthiness wound is it's a relational wound. It doesn't come out of, out of uh, nothing. It's not that we are just born unworthy. You know, I, tr- I try to imagine, I think it's helpful when I imagine that as babies, like we just don't really have a concept of a sense of self, but that, but that we're born with the wholeness, we're born with the fullness on, on a spiritual level, on an energetic level. Um, and it is a relationship with our predominant caregivers, whoever is around us and our continual contact with those people that we begin to, t- our sense of self takes shape. We learn who we are through the lens of other people. It is by how other people see us, how they interact with us, how they interact with each other. That's what's helping us understand our internal landscape. It's how people around us help us make sense of what we're experiencing internally. And so if we continue to get the message, for example, like, stop crying, stop being so emotional, stop having so many feelings about it, get over it. It's not a big deal, right? If we, it's not a one-time thing. It's a chronic perpetual, um, I, uh, being told that what you are feeling internally is not going to land anywhere. Like no one is going to be able to take that internal experience and make sense of it with you. They're going to reject it. They're going to deny it. What happens is that a, a split starts to form where we start to learn, Oh, how, who I am and this the stuff inside of me isn't good. It's not resulting in the love and the connection and the attachment that I need. So the only way that most children know how to adapt and make sense of it is that I'm going to cut that part off of myself. I'm going to split. I'm going to put that bad stuff, all those bad feelings, quote unquote, negative feelings, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to shove them away and I'm going to do what I need to do to be loved. And that usually for a lot of people with the worthiness, though not all, that gets developed into people pleasing. It develops into perfectionism. It gets developed into this this 
immense sensitivity to the world around us, but no words to put to that sensitivity. And so it's a relational wound. It comes out of being chronically told that we are too much and not enough. So, so the, the container that was actually lacking was within our caregivers, not of maybe their, their own, it's probably a result of their own childhood and their own, right? But now we internalize that container and we believe, oh, I am too much or I am not enough. When really, that's not, that's not it at all. It's the people around us that were, for whatever reason, too much or not enough. Oh, my God, this is amazing. You totally just answered my question. I was going to ask you, what is the mask that somebody with a worthiness wound <laughs> wears, like women? Um, but then I feel like it pull, the, this wound polarizes. So, so it shows up differently in different people, especially. 100%. How, and this is something that I'm very curious about, how do you think or you have seen in your experience that it shows up in men who are more on the narcissistic end, who are very, you know, when there's come, when there comes this, I don't want to put the label of narcissistic abuse, but like those men have very specific traits. And it's like, how does, and I know deep down, there's a worthiness part to their personality and the mask they wear. How do you feel like that they wear this mask? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that cultural conditioning is so, it's so evident, and you can really see, you know, they've done experiments where the minute the person knows the gender of the baby, they start to treat the baby differently. And despite so much push against, um, right, understanding gender and sexuality, not so much in binary buckets, but seeing it as more um, uh, fluid and, and understanding that there is such arbitrary divisions between between the two. And it's actually much more dynamic in nature. And it's much more dynamic in hum the human experience. It still is very pervasive that there's certain expectations placed on boys and there's certain expectations placed on girls. And with boys, the, the general expectation is to toughen up you know, to not have feelings. And the only feelings that boys tend to be allowed to have is anger. Um, but, you know, this uh, narcissism has become very popularized in our culture. It's be it's become like the new psychopath, right? Every Everything is, or sociopath, whatever. Everything is to be about being a sociopath. Now everything's about narcissism. And I think the intense curiosity about narcissism now is very interesting. And I think it gets overused. And I, and I, and I think it gets when we put labels, we stop getting curious about it. And we start to see all behavior that maybe we don't like, and we put that label onto it. So I'm, I'm careful with the word narcissism, but there, there is something that really happens when we are chronically told to shut off parts of ourselves and told that um, our character comes from um, being better than people right? Like in a hyper competitive environment where you're told that how good you are at football and how good you are at being the dominant masculine man is, is your identity. It, 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 it's just, you can so clearly see how painful that is. Um, 
and how then it, it, you lack a knowledge of empathy. You, you lack the thing that on the other side for women is so abundantly overflowing in, right? For a lot of women, there's a hyper empathy where there's no separation between self and other, where we're just so quickly taking everything on from the environment around us. And there's no, um, no boundary between that. Yeah, and you can so see the that. difference. Yeah, there's a lot right, right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. yeah so not putting that on the spectrum i'm not trying to compare the two but just to say that like yeah it's very it's very interesting how the worthiness wound affects men differently um and it's it's not that the worthiness wound is at the core of everything it's just that i'm seeing that the worthiness wound is much more at the core than i think many of us would like to admit mm -hmm. it is actually very true and i think it's like when I started doing this work, I started the awakening, my spiritual awakening. When I was 31, I left this toxic relationship, uh, relationships, like I didn't know who I was. And then I felt so unworthy. So like not enough and all of that. And for me, mm. it's like a cultural because I'm Mexican here in the United States. So I'm first generation immigrant. So there is this inferiority that I always felt with white women in my case. Mm -hmm. so it was like, sure. that for me, is like, oh, feeling so unworthy. I'm like, oh, no, but this is not it. What's going on? So then for me, it's been about my sister. My sister mm -hmm. being the superior one to me, what I made it mean, and me mm -hmm. feeling less worthy than her because of her mm -hmm. beauty, her brains, everything. She was like the perfect person mm -hmm. <laughs> in my eyes when I was mm -hmm. little, you know, and every all my cousins wanted to be like her. And I'm like, why, why don't they want to be like me? I'm also like like good, you know. So I made it me. I dragged this wound with me all these years in my 20s, attracted people that were not the best aligned for me. And then when I finally started doing the work, it's just like, oh my God, this is like, uh, for me, it's at the root of so much stuff. But for me, it is a lot of uh, gen intergenerational. It's a lot of what my mom went through when she was pregnant with me. And it's about my grandma, her upbringing, the feminine, the women in my lineage It's also how they felt. So for me, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot passed down. And I feel yeah. like you encounter that with a lot of the clients that you work with, or is it more like in this lifetime for them? And it's not something that was passed down. Oh my gosh. I mean, mo the fact that like we existed in the wombs of our grandmothers, right? Like really tells us that like, so, and the science is supporting this. I love how like science is always so behind, right? Like we, like this gets been like ancient knowledge for humanity for so long, but science is now just kind of supporting this, which is like, of course, of course, how our grandparents, how our ancestors related to themselves is slowly passed down. Um, and I think that that can make it really hard to then discern what's ours and what's not ours. And it can get really complicated because it's like, oh, like I remember I had a friend, there was a point in time at the beginning of my business where I was struggling with making money, which I think a lot of business owners struggle with. And I had a really good friend was like, you know, it just maybe feels like, um, your struggle with money is ancestral. Like it really stems and I'm like, yeah, like thinking about it, you know, now I'm making more money than my, my, than all of my members of my family um, have ever made. And at the time I'm like, Oh great. What am I supposed to do with that then? 
You know what I mean? Like, oh, great. So poverty has like run in my family line for as long as anybody knows. Like, great. How am I supposed to now change that and change myself? You know, there's like a lot of a lot of weight and pressure that now suddenly I'm responsible for like changing the family line. And it can feel like a lot. And I think it was it was important for me to maybe acknowledge and know that this isn't just my struggle, that there is an interconnected piece to it, but also remove the pressure that I am now suddenly the responsible one for break, you know, like it's all on me. Um, because I don't know if that's necessarily helpful either, right? There's like, there's our piece and there's our place, but maybe we don't have to like save our entire line we don't have to like break every single you know we don't have to do it and, and what's wild is once you kind of remove the pressure you end up doing the thing you end up changing the entire family line right like you it ends up happening anyway but i find that like for me that pressure often feels more debilitating than helpful and it's interesting that i even see it as a pressure i think that that probably speaks to my own psyche <laughs> and how i tend to view a lot of things as pressure to be perfect to get it to be you know even in my healing yeah, and you mentioned something right now very interesting, the cycle breakers. And then I read in your bio that you do help women who are visionaries, seekers, and cycle yeah. breakers. Why cycle breakers? Why do you want to help those people? Do you see yourself as a cycle breaker now that you I do? That? Yeah. I do. Yeah. I think it's I think the cycle breakers are I do work predominantly with women. So it's it's women cycle it's a really cool place to be when you have this realization that you want to do it differently and that realization comes with a really cool set of possibilities you know and it takes it, it we often we can't force people to see possibilities so it often just happens it's an internal shift that just happens where somebody realizes oh you know what, like, I want to, I want to break either my own cycle or intergenerational cycle. Like I want, I want to try things differently. I want to do things that that open mindedness is so sexy, right? Like it's so, yeah. <laughs> it's so pleasurable. It's such a delight. It's very hard to, to change if we don't, if, if there's no like we can't force other people to change, which I imagine you've experienced. We've all experienced, right? Like, oh my gosh, if this person could just, right? Yeah. It, it's very hard. And then you tell them like, can you please just, and they're like, no, I don't really want to just or to do whatever. It's impossible to get people to change. So there's something very appealing about when we want to change and we come into the world, to the work with this like open arms, open hands. It's like, okay, now you're in a place where, we can receive and we can do the hard work of going inward and understanding and making sense and putting together some of these kind of more relational pieces back together. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree that. Thank you for sharing all of this. I am, I do consider myself and I do call myself the cycle breaker of the family, the black sheep. I thought it was yeah. my there because he was like the genuine troublemaker. Like yeah. he was in trouble. I was like, he's a black sheep, not me. And then when I started my awakening journey and like really seeing everything and I was like, oh my God, I can see the patterns. I can see my pet, my, how I was raised, the conditioning. Like I started putting things together and just the work that I'm doing right now that focuses a lot on reconnecting women to their bodies, their wombs, their menstrual cycles because of my own journey. 
And for me, it's like my family, it's not supportive at all. They don't like it. And when I smear menstrual blood on my face, because for me, it's like, hey, I almost got a hysterectomy. I am so grateful that I have a period. So yes, I'm going to honor my womb and my cycle every single month. And I look forward to it. And my periods, the endometriosis and everything that I experienced kind of started going away, like the pain It's Mm -hmm. minimal. And my family just like, are not supportive. And and I know this, this is this is what happens when you want to not change everyone, but you want to do things differently, you see the vision differently, you want to do different things in the women in your family, especially for me, all the women in my family, were with all the respect to my ancestors and my grandma, they were all codependent. They were all self-sacrificing. They were all mm-hmm. focused more on the housewife role, more on the raising the children, cooking the dinner, all those very beautiful roles for so many women. But for me, it's like, that doesn't align with me. I don't like being a wife. Yeah. I don't like cleaning. I, I mean, like, I got like cleaning to have the house clean, but I'm like, I don't want to be cleaning because I'm married and because that's what I'm supposed to do as a woman. I don't want to cook because mm-hmm. I'm and I have to feed him. I don't want to do his laundry because he can do his laundry, you know? And for me, mm-hmm. when I realized this, it's like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? Like, I don't want to be married. And I separate it and it's like breaking this cycle. And it's just like, everything that I'm doing, it goes against all my family, what they have taught me. And it's just being it's it's hard it's hard because pair with this it's like oh my god I feel so unworthy I feel so like not enough and undeserving and it's just kind of like playing around with how do I make sense of who I want to be in my path when I'm carrying all of this and I'm carrying my family not supporting me I'm carrying like breaking every rule of every woman in my lineage and it's just mm-hmm. it's a lot but at the same time it's like no this is going to set the foundation for the uh, me as an ancestor for the future when i'm not here i'm still going to be an ancestor and it's like how do i want to what legacy do i want to leave on earth when i'm gone mm-hmm. and you know and it, for me it's like okay we gotta it's a lot of healing the worthiness wound it's a lot of healing the undeservingness the not belonging which is something that it i've never felt like i belonged and why mm-hmm. is that something that it's so attached to the worthiness, not belonging, not the serving. What do you think? Well, belonging is a, is a relational knowing, right? It's, it comes, it, it's a, it's comes out of relationship and belonging is a sense of I'm allowed to exist. I'm allowed to be here and I am held in how who I am. And so if we are getting the messages of not enough and too much and, we're being compared to other children or we're being kind of told that we have to be different or how we are is acceptable. That very foundation of belonging gets shaked. Um, and so oftentimes healing the worthiness wound is the journey of back to belonging, um, back to belonging within ourselves, but also back to belonging and feeling like we belong on this planet and that we are deserving of being alive and being here and making an impact and creating a legacy and, and leaving our mark. Um, those things very much go hand in hand. Um, and so, you know, it, it's really hard when we're building, when we're breaking the cycle of um, being self-sacrificial, it can feel very much like the, the way forward is to just um, kind of do the exact opposite. And having the pendulum swing the other way can 
on one hand be so incredibly liberating and expansive and exciting. And oftentimes the opposite of what we're used to is, is still a reaction out of the pain. And it's tremendously hard and really important particularly when we have these like role models, right? That is so clear that they want us to be like them for us. So part of the work is to see like how we can own and love the part of us that is that too. That can be, I mean, that's like really advanced. That's like really hard work to do. It's like with the example of being self-sacrificial, for example, it's like, where is, is there, actually the core of self-sacrifice is a really it's a really beautiful thing and it may have been displayed and may have been acted out in a way that was really harmful and painful but we all have elements of of self-sacrificing and all and that element can be so beautiful and can be so amazing in a relationship if it is kind of related to with thoughtfulness instead of what it what I imagine you grew up in, which is no, this is your default mode and anything that's not that is selfish. Um, and that can, and that can be a really beautiful part of the journey too. Yeah. That's actually a very good point that you're making because I, we tend to as a society and actually me, I've done it myself and I just kind of did it right now. It's labeling this self-sacrificing, codependent, people pleasing, all of this roles or traits as bad in a way, but there is also, okay, why is this triggering me? Why is this like getting to me? Like for me, it's like, if it doesn't trigger, it's unless if it triggers you, it's because it's kind of like a wound within you. That's the way I see it. So for me, for example, with my grandma, the self-sacrificing, I'm not really seeing how loving she was to everyone. So part of being Mm -hmm. self-sacrificial is being very loving, very empathic, very compassionate. And she was all those traits. So for me, the self-sacrificing, it means forgetting about me. It means forgetting mm-hmm. my needs, forgetting, not putting myself first. But then my grandma back then, she didn't have all these tools. She was taking care of 12 children. <laughs> and my mom quit school. I think she didn't even end up elementary because she was going to, she helped my grandma raise her siblings and taking care of the home. So is this part of my mom also sacrifice herself for her family? And it's like, it's like, wow, that's admirable at the same time. But at the same time, it's like she forgot about herself. And it's just kind of for me right now, I'm feeling like right now in my body is this duality. It's like, oh, I'm, I, I love that she did that. But at the same time, I don't love that she forgot about herself because she grew up mm-hmm. not enough you know and then I grew up also with that because she would always like I don't know if um in your family your mom's like you mom's like just value yourself and I'm like but how do I do that I don't know how to do that I actually do need instructions when you're little you're only told that and they you're not shown how to do it so you keep just like well I'm just modeling what I'm seeing it's not like you know so I do wish she would have had a different life but she didn't but yeah to what I'm getting back at is that there's also this beautiful part of all this the self-sacrificing the people pleasing and why we do it a lot of times it's like we just want to get love we just we have hearts so big that we just don't know how to do it but then it's this factor is like okay you're forgetting about yourself 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's been a really interesting part of my process lately has been to really reflect on, you know, I moved to the United States from Brazil when I was seven. Um, and I've been trying to kind of reclaim the narrative in my mind of, because I'll tell people just like that, I moved to the United States when I was seven from Brazil. But it was actually like, it wasn't real. It, it, it's feeling more and more real for me to say to myself, like I was non-consensually removed from my country and brought to the United States at the age of seven. And what that has offered me is a deeper realization of how much that experience was very painful for me and has led me into a journey of not ever feeling like I belong anywhere, not just because of the worthiness wound, but because of my identities and because I am not American, but I'm not Brazilian. I, my entire family is in Brazil, but I am not that, but I am also not this. Mm-hmm. And having to then reclaim my not that itness and, and, and reclaiming my that is that I actually am both and that there's a, a beauty in that I am both, but that I also was deprived of a full one, right? Like I was deprived of being fully Brazilian. And it's complicated because then we can think about the fact that, you know, my ancestors came to South America and, you know, probably participated in slavery and, you know, genocide. And, you know, I don't know exactly what the role my ancestors played in the history of the colonization of Brazil, but, you know, I have a whole, like my ancestry, I have, you know, a percentage that's from Africa, a percentage that's from Europe, a percentage that's from, you know, um, the Slavic regions. And it's like, I probably am a part of the whole story. <laughs> there is definitely me in that story somewhere. And, and so it's really interesting that so much of um, the current um, kind of process and conversation, social justice has really invited me to think about how it can feel so oversimplified. It can be such an oversimplification conversation. And actually what we can do is really attempt to understand just how much our identity is shaped. Just like what you shared, your identity has been shaped by your Mexican background and also being in the United States and also the influence of normative culture of seeing that white women are the epitome of beauty and having to grapple with your own beauty and then seeing it in your, you know, and it's just really interesting for me how much I have tended to um, rewrite my history as, oh, I just moved here and write off that actually so much of my worthiness wound comes from that experience. And it's important for me to understand it. Yes. Oh my God. I so relate to this. Like, so relate to everything you said. I'm like nodding. Yes, yes, yes. When yes. you were speaking, <laughs> because I came here when I was 14. But for me, uh-huh. it was, I consented it because I wanted it. I was so excited. And mm. my dad always lived here in the United States. And we lived in Mexico. I was born in Mexico. Uh-huh. And actually, when I was before I was born, my mom left because my grandma pretty much said she was not going to help my mom. <laughs> and then my mom had my brother who was a year older than me. So she had a lot going on. So they decided that it was best for my mom to go to Mexico. And I was born there without my dad. And I didn't even know my dad was not in my birth. I just found out last year that my dad was not in my mm. birth, birth. And that just hit me so bad. I'm like, this is 
where I felt uh, this is my abandonment route for me. That's mm-hmm. what I realized that. But besides that, and I know I always wanted to come here and live with my dad. Like I always did because it was always like seasonal. Like he would go to Mexico half of the year and then come back. So it was never like I never had my dad 24 seven. So coming here, it was this whole cultural shift. I never had the whole, I had struggled with assimilation. I struggled with really identifying. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I was and like you, I'm like, I'm not from Mexico, but I'm also not from here. Like, who am I? Like I was so lost mm-hmm. for 20 years. And in high school, there was a lot of bullying because I came from private Catholic schools with nuns. So I was very reserved. I was very well covered up. I was actually called a nun for a few men in high school because I wouldn't even let men touch me or go like this. I would snap (laughs) at them. I'm like, don't be touching me. And it was just a lot of um, bullying. But the bullying came from Latina Mexican women. It didn't come from white women who saw me as inferior. It came from my own people. So for me, there was also this disconnection, like, oh, like I, I, I'm not even proud to say that I'm Mexican because my own people don't even like me. Like, I'm not going to like them. So it was like this very like facade of like bitch attitude, like whatever. But deep down, I was hurting. And it was just called kind of like this identity loss for so many years, even through mm-hmm. college. And this is where I'm going to ask you a question about the eating disorder. Because when I went to college, um, it was to also get away from my family <laughs> because it was just like a lot of, um, a lot of, they were very strict and Catholic and all of this. So for me, it's like, I want to experience freedom. So when I started college, my first year is when my eating disorder started for me. And it was also tied, obvious, uh, obviously for me, it's also tied to the worthiness issue and so many other things. Mm-hmm. But for me, it started in college. And I, you just mentioned at the beginning that yours also started in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just a time of real individuation where you're really trying to learn who you are and you're away from, for me, I was away from my family for the first time and really on this path of wanting to find myself away from family expectations. And um, I think I underestimated and I think a lot of, I see this quite often actually, is that college is, is, is actually a quite traumatizing experience for a lot of people um, and y- you see it in the behavior, right? The, the yes, like drinking culture is, is kind of normal, but also like why are so many people called to participate so heavily in drink culture? I think it's because they're all trying to really grapple with this huge experience of, of individuating away from their family. And, and I, I don't think we prepare our children for this move and Anyway, so for me, it's like I was in a new city. I went to Boston and I grew up in Maryland. So far enough for me to feel like I was really away from any type of support system and trying to find myself. And um, I think I felt very much out of control and very overwhelmed and very scared. And I think the things that I had been experiencing through high school was brought to the surface now that I was more alone. And that's what led me to kind of use food as a way to kind of manage my internal experience. So I think, you know, 
how we respond to really hard things is in many ways shows us how we were prepared to respond. And if we didn't have the right preparation because of our upbringing, then we're not going to respond the way maybe we wish we have responded. So yeah, it was a big transition. It was a big, big move. And I fell really hard into a spiral of um, restriction and losing weight and wanting to go back home for the summer, like really impressing my friends with how skinny and pretty I looked. And um, that set off a whole slew of other disordered and, and problematic eating behaviors. And um, it took a long time to climb out of that hole. It was very painful. Yeah, it's a painful journey that a lot of people don't understand. Mine was... yeah. It was a big shift. I was so excited to move away from my family. But at the same time, I was there alone with no manual of how to be alone, how to live mm -hmm. alone in the United States. And I went to University of Iowa. So it was like it was like three and a half, four hours away from Chicago, where my parents lived. And around that time, I didn't drink. I never even had alcohol until I got there. I was, I lived in the dorms my first year. And I, rem I would hear the girls say, oh, let's just not invite Mary because she doesn't drink. She's not fun. And I internalized that so much that it's mm -hmm. like, oh, in order for me to belong, something that I never felt like I belonged. And mm -hmm. I have to also take part in this drinking culture. So for me, that was like my immersion to it, to be accepted, to belong and all of this. And they were all skinny white women. There were very few Latinos back then at the University of Iowa at that time when I went to college. And it was like, I wanted to join a sorority because I wanted to belong so bad. And I wanted, I think I had this white girl syndrome <laughs> that I wanted to be like them because if I was like them, they were like this model that I had for me of what worthiness or what superiority felt like and mm -hmm. it's just so skewed right because I don't even think about it like that but now it's like when I look at it it's like yeah I just wanted to be like them I wanted them to like me mm -hmm. I wanted to, them to accept me and to include me and, and I didn't even join the sorority because it was like feels fake to me I'm like I don't mm -hmm. want to be someone to like me or to be my friend like no it's okay but then it did spiral me into the bulimia. It did spiral me into that because mm -hmm. I was trying to find myself. And it's just like all these feelings I didn't want inside of me mm -hmm. after the binging, it would be just like getting them out. My way to release them because mm -hmm. I didn't have the tools to do it or the knowledge or the awareness. And it's been a journey of that. And I had... I've fallen back a few times and it's just like, now it's more like understanding that a lot of the eating disorder that I suffer was linked to my mom, mm -hmm. the work that I have done. So it's, 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 I'm so glad that it's just kind of like, kind of getting out there and like with my story, cause I've never really openly shared. And for me, it was a lot of the, I got into fitness and nutrition. I competed. I had a six pack and I had muscles and how am I going to share my story that I had that. And even when I had a relapse, like a few years ago, it's like, how am I going to share this story? Like I was so ashamed of it that even mm -hmm. that he came back, that he came back. And I'm like, how am I going to share this story people see me as this fitness person as this inspiration role model like how am I going to share it so little by little I've done the work to be okay with telling is this story because I'm like this is a huge part of my puzzle because when it happened my brother was shipped to Iraq 
and twice deployed he got injured once so i would remember my mom calling me your brother died like they they something happened in the area that he's at and i would be driving back in the middle of the night for four hours with all the anxiety so it was just like a lot of like changes that happened the first year that i went to college but yeah it's um it's it's just something that i'm opening more and i'm glad i'm sharing my story on this podcast I relate to that you mentioned that at the beginning, but I actually do want to ask a question. How does the worthiness wound stop us, especially us women from putting ourselves out, out there, especially in business as an entrepreneurs or you putting yourself like women, like you putting themselves out there, sharing their knowledge, sharing themselves, like um, pursuing their goals and their dreams. And how does that, how does the worthiness wound stop us from doing that? Yeah, I often find that um, there's a real fear when we're going into business that, you know, whatever we want to do has already been done um, and that there's no point in us doing it because it's already being done and being done better. There's a fear of charging, asking for money um, and engaging in the sales and marketing aspect of the business because, you know, we don't want to seem too pushy or aggressive or um, it doesn't feel um, uh, good. You know, it doesn't feel right for us to um, put ourselves out there. Um, there's a lot of sense of, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know, you know, I, 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 I need it to be perfect. I need whatever I say to like look perfect. And if I'm going to start a business, I need it to have a full business plan and the whole marketing strategy and everything has to just look perfect before I do it. Um, so there's like a lot of ways and, and a lot of ways that it manifests, but it's, it's always coming down to the sense of if people saw who I really am, they, they wouldn't be impressed. They, you know, I would feel really embarrassed, um, if they saw who I really am because I'm a fraud, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to be something that I'm not and who I am is inadequate and broken, um, and so it can be really, really hard. And I, you know, have a mentorship for depth coaches. Um, so coaches who do deep uh, work with, you know, emotional work with people and, and want a supportive environment to guide them into that depth work. And um, so I see what's happening in the coaching industry through these women. And, you know, there's, it's, there's such an aggressive push to make your life look amazing and to make your life look perfect and to sell that perfect life. And so, of course, if all you're seeing on Instagram are all these people's perfect lives and you look at your life and your life is so deeply imperfect, you're going to feel like, oh, there's something wrong with me. I can't possibly start my business. I can't possibly put my work out there. Um, it, it doesn't compare to the, these women and how these women are doing it. Um, and I think in some ways, you know, the, I often see our wounds as a great gift in that, you know, the worthiness wound really invites us to start our healing journey. It really, for many people, is the catalyst to actually start looking inside themselves and understanding what's going on. But there's actually something to be said of like, it doesn't have to feel yucky. You know, there are parts of businesses that is uncomfortable because it's new, because you're putting yourself out there, because you're you're cultivating skills that you may never have to cultivate before, like self-advocacy and boundaries with your clients or with, you know, your marketing, with your work. And these things can be activating. But it also doesn't have to be yucky. It doesn't have to feel immoral. It doesn't have to feel like you're pushing 
something really sacred within yourself. So it's just that fine line of figuring out like how you can trust your intuition and, and trust the, the, the voice that says like, no, I don't want to do it that way. While also understanding what is the part of you that feels like you can't put yourself out there because you're not perfect enough. You're not good enough or in whatever way. Yes, that is so huge because I feel like a lot of us who have not only the worthiness wound, but so many other things, and even as a coping mechanism or trauma response, I don't know the exact word for this, but it's like we procrastinate. We don't put ourselves out there. We play small. We're afraid to be seen, to be heard, to, you know, to just be seen out there. And for me, it was a lot of, um, knowing how many things I've gone through that people are going to think I'm really fucked up or screwed up. It was just that I was like, I was like, yeah, but this is because I'm judging myself too for everything, all the struggles I've been through. Cause it to me, it was like, Oh my God, one thing after the other. I'm like, Oh my God, people are really going to think my life is just like a big mess. And it came to the point that I was like, no, it's okay for me to be a messy human because I am, I can't deny it. And I don't like, being fake I cannot I just cannot be fake and I'm like I have to show people the struggles that I've been through by sharing my story and the bulimia was it's been one that I was so ashamed to even have it and it's already mm -hmm. a painful thing to do and it's just and then paired with shame about it and sharing my story but I'm like no because it's something that it's very real for me so just sharing my story and putting myself out there it is a lot of work to be an entrepreneur because I feel like it's the biggest personal work I've done on myself and healing work because it's like so many things going to play like putting ourselves out there like charging like the boundaries especially the boundaries because for me it felt like a confrontation and I was like but boundaries are not really about confrontation it's just having a preference of hey this is not okay with me and I was seeing it as mm -hmm. like it was gonna end up in a fight that's what I was seeing it as mm -hmm. and I refrained that I'm like no it's not confrontation it's just having a conversation that it's a little hard to have because I'm not used to it but yeah even setting the boundaries it's a lot of personal work for so many women that they don't want to do it so we people please we say yes and we want to say no. And I feel like mm -hmm. an entrepreneur has gone through a lot of healing work to mm -hmm. put themselves out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think entrepreneurship is a is very much a healing journey. I mean, yeah. you, you don't go into entrepreneurship um, and come out on the other end kind of unscathed. You know, you really become more of yourself through the journey, but it can be it can be very painful and it's not for everybody. And like, that's not, there's nothing wrong with you if it's not for you. You know, I think there's this narrative that like you're a prison of the capitalistic system. If you work a nine to five, but listen, entrepreneurship is just not for everybody. And that is so okay. Um, but if you are called to entrepreneurialism, it will change you. It will really guide you into something much deeper within yourself. And that's going to be painful and also extremely formative and open and it's it's I mean I I've been an entrepreneur for since 2010 so I've been a long time at this and it whew, it definitely put me through the ringer you know yeah and I think for me it's been a lot of like showing my personality offline and online and 
both being congruent because I was not doing it at the beginning. I was not doing it at the beginning. I was just kind of like, not too much about appearance, but it was the fitness journey. I was a fitness, just showing my physique and everything. But then when I started doing the internal work, reading books, I'm like, no, I'm like, I want to show like the mental process that nobody's seen, the mental shifts, the energetic shifts, like everything mm -hmm. nobody's seen. So that it's when people's like, oh, you used to inspire us more when you were into fitness. I'm like, yeah, but that was just like physical inspiration. I want you to be inspired yeah. from within. I want sure. my from within because that's the one you're not seeing, but that's the one that I have evolved the most. And it's just the one I'm passionate about. So yeah, I have a qu another question for you. Yeah. Um, so how do you, what programs do you have that can help women start healing this worthiness wound? Yeah. So I do, I do a couple things. I have my mentorship. I do one-on-one -on -one coaching and then I have my program Worthy Women Rise. And that's my, I call it my signature program because it's my only program and I've been running it for six years now. So it's like my baby. It's my brainchild. It's what I pour everything into. And I, have like it's like a five-month version and there's a year-long version i'm actually just wrapping up my year-long it's my first year-long um at the end of the month and i feel very sad about it it's been a really wonderful journey of being in this process with women for a whole year and i love it i love the year-long container there's something really powerful about letting this work take time and being in it for a longer period of time um but yeah so where the women rise is um, you know, it, it's my comprehensive program for women who are struggling with the worthiness wound and want deeper relationship with themselves and other women and other humans around them. Um, and I talk all about the worthiness wound and all of the facets and layers of how to begin to tend to this part of themselves. Are you also offering private mentorship coaching or you are like more therapy um, oriented? Yeah, so I do one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching, one-on-one -on -one mentoring, and my, my group mastermind mentorship. Um, I'm not offering um, psychotherapy at this time for the general public. I only do psychotherapy at the clinic that I work at here in Los Angeles um, because I am an associate. So uh, associate therapists, we work under uh, someone else's license. So I'm very limited in, in my ability to offer that right now. But that will change in the next year where I will be starting to offer psychotherapy for people in the state of California. Um, but yes, coaching, um, it is depth coaching, you know, it is deep work, um, but it would fall under the umbrella of coaching. Yeah. So where can everybody find you to find all about you, your work and everything that you do in case they're interested in diving deeper into this? Yeah, work? you can go to my website, IamTaisSky.com, or you can go to my Instagram at IamTaisSky. Um, I, I love Instagram and I love sharing my writings there. And then my website, you can learn all about me and my work. Yes. And one, thank you so much for sharing that. One last question uh, to wrap up this beautiful conversation. What is the truth, your truth of who you are underneath all the work that you have done underneath all the conditioning, programming, belief systems, like the real, real you? Yeah, um, I think in alignment with this whole conversation, I think the word that words that just came to me is I am enough. Yeah, I am enough. That's perfect. Thank you so much for being here in this conversation in this podcast. This has been such a treat. Thank you for sharing your story with me and for 
um, being willing to be vulnerable about your journey. I mean, it's not easy. This is hard work and it's really powerful to hear other people going through that experience. So I really appreciate you and for having me on. Thank you so much. And I hope you have an amazing day. <laughs> Thank Bye. you. For Feminine Truth Podcast, this podcast is for you for me, for us, for the Feminine Collective. Thank you so much for spending your time and energy with us. Share on Instagram and Facebook stories what resonated with you. And if you're listening to this and for anyone to get a hold of this podcast at Feminine Truth Podcast, and if you feel called to leave us a review, let us know your thoughts, let, on, let us know how this has felt for you listening to the podcast. And the episodes are going to be every Tuesday. So I cannot wait to see you next time. Sending so much love.